the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, episode 647 for Sunday, March 5th, 2017. Yeah, greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab. The show that's like Car Talk, but for Apple geeks. And for those of you who, you who don't know what Car Talk is, kids, ask your parents. No, we come and you send in your questions. We answer your questions. You share your tips. We share your tips. You share your cool stuff found. We share our cool stuff found. The goal is simply for all of us, every single one, you, 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 and yes, me, to learn at least four new things each and every time we get together. Sponsors for this episode include Blue Apron. Where at blueapron.com slash MGG, you get your first three meals for free. We'll talk about what some of those meals can be a little bit later. And also text expander for teams because it can help you with your customer service. And as I like to say, every business is the customer service business. You can learn about that at textexpander.com slash geek. We'll talk more about that in a minute here in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. How goes it, Mr. Braun? Good. Staying warm. Staying uh, humidified. That's good. Ah, 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 staying alive. That kind of thing. Is that what, mm-hmm. uh, is that what you're trying to say there? Yeah, it's a little bit, been a little cold here in, in New England. I was down in Florida all week, but, um, but now I'm back to the, uh, it was like four last night when I went to sleep. That's not okay. That's, that's very cold. Four Fahrenheit, for those of you um, that, that uh, that don't always live in in Fahrenheit related lands. So, yeah, very cold, very very cold. But you know, it's all good. We have. And how would we? And you know, a quick tip here. Yeah. You may ask yourself, how would I convert from Fahrenheit to Celsius? And here's a here's a quick tip here. I like it. Uh, you can do it from Safari. So I type into the menu bar, four F space equals space question C. And it tells me that 4F is negative 15 degrees Celsius. I think you can also do that with a spotlight. 4F equals question C in Safari's address bar? Correct. Uh, That just brings up a Google search that shows me 4F minus C total in geochemistry at ACT Labs. Really? Yeah. All right. So you type 4 the letter F yep. space equals space question C. That's correct. Well, the result I got. Well, it says in my bar, it says Google search and, and it tells me that because what you're asking is, okay, four F equals how many C and it's smart oh, enough to know. I see. So without that. Yeah. Okay. So, but it's just doing the Google search for that calculation. Yes, and I think Spotlight, yes. you can do that as well. So uh, yeah. unit conversions are... Uh, well, actually, no, so Spotlight's different because Safari is literally just doing the Google search for you and finding that calculation. If you simply into Spotlight type 4F, you don't have to type anything else. It says equals negative 15.56 degrees C. Hey, look at that. Yeah, <clears throat> that's pretty good. So handy dandy way to convert between almost any unit as long as Google can figure out what you're talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. All right. I like this. This is good. And you're oh, right. And it's also 257 Kelvin. Hmm. You know, yeah, you know, it's cold when you can start measuring the temperature in Kelvin. 
I don't, I don't actually know what that phrase is supposed to mean because you can always men- measure the temperature in Kelvin, right? I guess, I guess maybe the right way to say it is, you know, it's cold when you can only measure the temperature in Kelvin. But, and I also don't know what that means because you can always measure the temperature in other well, scales. Well, I think zero Kelvin is absolute zero. That's the coldest right. you can get. Right. right, right. That's right. Yeah. I don't know. These are little sound bites I share with you folks for you to use in your everyday lives. You can, uh, you can either give me credit or not. Uh, it depends on whether or not the people that you're with like them. If they do like them, I assume you'll keep credit for yourselves. If they don't, you blame that jerk on the podcast. So there you go. Uh, Harvey, let's see if we can help Harvey here. Harvey writes, have you guys ever heard of this where my menu bar, which is set to always show, hangs occasionally? The clock stops and putting the mouse there at the top of the screen reveals the spinning beach ball. Logging out and back in fixes it. But how can I stop this from happening at all? I'm running 10.12.3 on a late 2012 iMac uh, with 16 gigs of RAM and an SSD. Uh, So, Harvey, your menu bar is and he also sent in a thing saying quitting the finder didn't help, which makes sense because that portion of the menu bar is run by a process called System UI Server, capital S, capital U-I-S. So it's capital S-Y-S-T-E-M, capital U-I-S. E-R-V-E-R. Um, that process runs the menu bar and you can get rid of it by typing kill all space system UI server in the terminal. So that would be one way to restart it without having to log out and log back in. You won't see it if you do a force quit uh, thing, but you will see it in activity monitor. If you don't want to have to go to the terminal, you can quit it from there and that will reset that. Now, as to why it's freezing in the first place, my first thought is, are you running any third party menu items that live inside the menu bar proper? And I, I qualify it that way because some things appear in the menu bar, but are not running inside of system UI server. They're running as their own processes with their own little things that, that sit up there. Um, and that's how they should be running, to be perfectly honest. So the, the easiest way to know, and you've got to have quick eyes is to do that force quit of system UI server and watch what disappears Uh, because there will, there may be things that stick around. Those are not running inside of system UI server. Those are not causing your hangs. So take a look at what does disappear. Maybe you have some older menu bar extension that, uh, that is living inside system UI server and is causing it to hang. I, I remember, you know, back in the day, even things like menu meters, which uh, actually still exists now, but you know, was kind of the predecessor, uh, the compete, the the preceding competition to iStat menus, and that uh, would live inside that that process. And I think maybe even iStat menus now lives inside that system UI server process. But um, so take a look, and and you might have something that's got a memory leak or 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 something else that's that's causing issues up there. What do you think, John? Uh, I think I'm with you. Um, it could be that one of the items needs an update. There's a bug or something, or as you said, memory yeah. leak. Yeah. So, um, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. That's what we got then. Um, moving on to Lou. Lou asks, he says, uh, we cruise quite a bit and take a lot of photos with our iPhones and iPads while traveling when connected to the ship's Wi-Fi due to limited bandwidth. I prefer my iPhone and iPad to not upload their photos to iCloud. 
But when I turn off any of the switches in system preferences or on the iPhone settings, iCloud photos, I get warnings that all the photos on the device will be deleted. Do you happen to know whether it is possible to pause syncing photos without deleting the photos on our devices? I really wish I had a better answer for you, Lou, because I know you want this. I know I want this. And I know the answer is no. Apple does not provide any granular way of controlling when or it doesn't provide any way at all of controlling when photos are uploaded to either iCloud photo library or photo stream. So the only way uh, they, and they will always be uploaded. Well, I say always, it's not entirely true. They will be uploaded when on Wi-Fi, and usually also when connected to power, but sometimes not. Sometimes it'll just do it anyway. So I don't have an answer for you. And, uh, and that kind of sucks, but, uh, but that's, that's what I have. The, the only thing I could think of would be to not use iCloud photo library and to use something like Google photos, or um, if you have Amazon prime, you could do Amazon prime photos, or if you've got a Synology disk station, you could use DS photo and simply not set those to upload while you're on the ship, you know, with, with, um, with Synology's thing, you can you set geofences where it will upload when you're um, in, you know, on Wi-Fi and inside that that geofenced area. So obviously don't set it to the ship or any of the ports that you're going to be in. Only set it to, say, home or your office, and then it will do those uploads um, automatically there. You could always trigger a manual upload uh, in any of those apps, but um, but not in Apple's iCloud Photos. So that so the answer is don't use PhotoStream or iCloud Photo Library. And I I understand what I'm saying by by saying that, but but that's the answer. Any thoughts on that, John? Am I? I, I would love to find out that I'm missing something. I, I don't think I am, though. I always have thoughts, and this one's going to be relevant. Um, <laughs> the thing is, on uh, on the Mac, I think you could do this with the clever application of Little Snitch. Yes. So Little Snitch, but I don't believe there's a product that's like Little Snitch uh, for iOS. No, because so you, you can't have for, anything run at that level on iOS, right? Yeah. So for those that don't know, Little Snitch is basically an outgoing firewall. Uh, probably, the, yeah. It will tell you when things are trying to communicate from your Mac to... Uh, over the network to something outside. And I think you could create a rule saying, uh, you know, okay. Um, all right. Photos is trying to connect to, and it may be AWS. Uh, it may be, you know, something else, but you could say, all right, you know, for, for this uh, time period or this condition, do not allow that connection to be made. Um, but again, I don't think there's a way to do that on iOS. Uh, the other thing I'll mention is that, um, so I use OneDrive and OneDrive, at least on, iOS, or at least the way I have it set up, you have to manually run the application in order to send your camera roll to the cloud. Which, on the one hand, you say, well, that's kind of lame. You know, it should be doing that in the background for you. Sure. Some other programs will do that in the background for you. On the other hand, it's nice because then you maintain control over when your stuff gets sent up to the cloud. Right. So... Yeah, there's yeah, no way I, to do it on iOS. I, I mean, I guess the way to do it would be to only have your Mac connect to the ship's Wi-Fi if you bring your Mac with you at all, 
and then only connect your iPhone to your Mac's Wi-Fi, you know, shared that way. I mean, it starts getting a little weird. Um, and, and of course, now you can only connect to Wi-Fi from your iPhone if you're within range of your Mac. It's not entirely um, good, but, um, you know. Uh, now, there is an app called, this is interesting. There might be a way to do this on on ios and and maybe this app that we're about to mention doesn't do it but um this is interesting so uh andy in the chat room at macgeekgab.com slash stream suggests a piece of software called adblock by futuremind which is an ios app that does all of its blocking by a creating a pseudo vpn and by choosing to send all traffic over the vpn you now can control what gets sent and what doesn't and so um, it's built to block ads, but uh, Andy seems to think that it will also block all of iCloud. Now, you that that's sort of a baby with the bathwater approach here, but um, but it might work. So we'll put a link to AdBlock there. But um, but I'm thinking that, you know, if AdBlock won't do it, it's certainly possible for someone to do this. And maybe the little snitch folks could uh, could write a little thing for for iPhone. Or an even better app than Little Snitch at this. Little Snitch will do it, John, and I've I've used it for that on my laptop for years. But there's a better nice. app. It's called Trip Mode, um, and it's a Mac app. But perhaps they could follow AdBlock's lead and create one for iPhone. Trip Mode makes doing this way easier on your Mac than uh, it is with uh, with Little Snitch. Because with Little Snitch, you've got to like create all the manual firewall rules and and kind of go nuts with it. With trip mode, it just sort of works. Um, it, it, you know, it's it's sort of it has all the rules in it, and you can choose whether internet access is allowed for things like you know any apps that you run, or uh, also things like iCloud and Dropbox and and you know those sort of what I'll call background processes, for lack of a better term. That's at tripmode.ch. So, um, but yeah, I like the idea of the VPN controlling it. It makes me think there might be another app to do this uh, that we don't know about here. So hopefully somebody, if it does exist, somebody listening knows about it. So good discussion. I like it. Okay. Uh, you want to take us to Michael, John? One of many, it seems. This is like the Michael episode. Mm. Almost. So I think we have like three Michael questions. I, I do. And I think they're all different Michaels too. <clears throat> yeah. So the first Michael writes in and says... He's running into a problem that we'd like an answer or solution to. Well, we'll do what we can. I have a file stuck in my trash and I've tried to permanently delete it and it doesn't want to. Uh, I go to eject the drive and then it disappears or, or the trash can then shows that it's emptied. So, um, and, and I kind of skimmed through that the first time I answered the question. Um, and we have talked about this in the past, so I'll offer a few tips here on how you, uh, how you can get rid of something in the trash that does not want to go away. So, uh, one, there is a piece of software, Dave, um, that's still out there, and it's called, appropriately enough, Trash It. And you can get it at nonamescriptware.com slash downloads, and you'll see the product there. And I think it does some stuff which we're going to talk about shortly in the terminal that kind of forces the trash to get emptied. So that's one thing to try. 
Um, now, here's the second. And so the first time I answer the question in the context of the regular trash. So this is going to require you to go to the terminal, but don't be afraid. We'll, we'll guide you through it. Um, so you may wonder, where is the trash located uh, on your system? And I'm going to tell you where it is. And it's kind of sneaky because it's kind of hidden. So what you want to do is if you go into the terminal, um, by default, it should open uh, and you should be in your home directory. Right. Um, now, if you do a LS, which lists all the files, you're not going to see anything called trash. Well, that's because it's sneakily hidden. It's actually dot trash is the trash directory for your primary drive. So what you could do dot trash with the, the capital T folks. Yes. So what you can do is go into the terminal type CD space dot trash. And that's the trash directory. And you should see the files that are in the trash for your primary drive. And, uh, the remove command is RM space and the name of the file. And you can type the first few characters and hit tab. It should do an auto completion. Same thing with trash. If you, if you type dot T and then hit the tab, that should CD you to the Again, trash. dot capital T, because there is yes. no dot lowercase T trash folder and it won't bring you anywhere. Correct. So that's one thing to try. But then he got back to me and said, well, it's on the external drive. And I'm like, oh, duh. You know, I didn't read the question fully. Um, and I think this may do it for him. Now, the thing is, a file on an external drive is not in dot capital T trash, it's in a different location. So you still want to go into the terminal, and then this gets kind of wacky. Um, but you want to CD space slash volumes, capital V, slash the name of the external drive. And again, typing a few characters and hitting tab will autocomplete that, including dealing with spaces and anything that you might have to deal with. Right then a slash, then dot capital T trashes. All right, that's kind of weird. It's a little different. Then a slash, and then what your user ID is. In my case, I saw 505. I think that's what that signifies. That's the, the it, ID of the user that owns that directory. It right? is, yeah. It, it'd be, it's easier just to, to go to CD slash volume slash name of external drive slash dot trashes and, and hit enter and then do an LS there and see what user IDs are listed that might make it easier than trying to, you know, guess yes. while you're typing the, the command. And that's actually what I did. When I went into trashes, I saw 505. It was the only directory there. So mm -hmm. I'm like, okay. And I went in there and then I saw the file that was in my external drives trash. Yep. Yep. And then the same thing, do an RM space, and uh, I don't even think you have to do a pseudo. I don't think, you, you may have to do a pseudo, but... Uh, this is another RM. one of those that's going to be good for you to, to pu publish as an MGG Answers, John, because it, all this terminal stuff... Oh, there's is, a lot of typing. And, is yeah, it, yeah there's a lot of typing. You're going to ruin everything. I, I want to uh, point out, as we've been doing this here, I've, I've been assisted greatly by the shell that i choose to use on my Macs. i i don't use a um the, any of the stock shells in the terminal so for those of you that are that are interested in the terminal and use it a lot uh, i use a shell called the fish shell uh which is at fishshell.com easy for me to say and it does a lot of great things like uh if i type uh you know cd space dot t lowercase t 
knows there's no folder in where, you know, where or no directory where I am with a lowercase T. So it automatically not only changes it to an uppercase T, but offers to fill in the remainder of that word. So it says dot capital T trash. And uh, it's a really, really great shell to use. Makes the autocomplete stuff super easy. You can choose things with your arrows. Um, it The if you're doing aliases in the terminal or anything like that, um, you get a much more robust way of controlling those with functions as opposed to aliases. And they're really easy to, uh, to do. And the best part is if, uh, it's easy to install because if you're using homebrew, you simply type brew install fish and, uh, and it installs fish and gives you the instructions that you need after it's finished installing, of course. To uh, to make it your default shell on your uh, on your Mac, so highly highly recommended for uh, for fish shell. So, and one more tip, I think we've already learned five things. Yeah, if not more. Say you want to change your shell to another of the ones that are built into the OS. Well, there's a command for that. If you go into the terminal. And I think this is still valid, though I haven't had to use it in a while. But if you type CHSH, mm-hmm. which I'm going to guess stands for change shell, it's first going to ask for your admin password. And then you're going to see, at least on this one machine, it actually opens up an editor. And uh, one of the lines in here is, oh, well, this is your shell. And they're located in the bin directory. So bash, again, I think is the default, but there are some others. If you look at the bin directory, you should be able, I think there's ZSH, there's SH, there's there's CSH, there's anything that ends in SH, I think it, it's pretty safe to say it's uh yeah. yeah. It's a shell. I mean you can find out by just running it. Sure. And and seeing if it changes the shell. You can do this though, you know, just to see if you like a different shell. Just yep. uh just run it. I think just you'll type have to it. go to bin bash i think you have to type a period in order to execute it or you may not to run a shell no just type the name of the shell if you want to run bash right because bin right because bin bin is your path so yeah yeah just just type bash or or you know zsh is one that um that a lot of people in the chat room are are telling me they like especially and zsh is built into your mac but they like it especially with something a, a little helper called oh my zsh which is at omyz.sh. And, uh, and so we'll put a link to that in the show notes too, so that, uh, so that you folks can check that out. So fun stuff with the terminal. I like it. I like it. I think, a there's, I think there's one last thing you can do, though I don't think this, uh, uh, there's another type of empty trash that you can do. Yeah. So if you go to the uh, finder menu, now I don't think this, uh, but if you go to the finder and you hold down option, well, first, if you go to the finder menu and there's something in the trash, there's an empty trash selection. Now, mine is grayed out because I don't have anything in the trash, and I'm not going to do do this now, <laughs> at least on the podcast machine. But there's empty trash, and I think if you hold down Alt, I think you get a different version of emptying the trash, and that may work. Is it like secure empty or something like that? It's a, it's a different version of uh, the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a different way of emptying the trash. That's another thing you can try, is that that may throw something out if right. Uh, regular right. empty trash does not yep yeah fun stuff cool hey you know while we're on the subject of um of shells and the terminal and all that i, I want to talk briefly ab- about um the amazon 
AWS outage that happened this week because it happened because someone, an engineer at Amazon, you know, they have all their servers are, are load balanced. And uh, one of the engineers wanted to take a few of their servers offline because uh, there was, they, they were, I don't know, something was happening with those that was causing the, the rest of things to slow down. So, you know, he or she, I don't know uh, who it was, but, uh, but he or she was going to take these, these servers offline, do whatever needed to be happened, needed to happen to them to, you know, get them back in business and then put those servers back online. And, uh, and this engineer fat fingered the command. And instead of uh, taking just, you know, a few servers offline took many, many, many servers offline. And, and this can happen, right? I mean, I, I've totally experienced this and what I've done in the past unintentionally as happened with this engineer is I've rebooted the wrong machine. I use the terminal all the time here. Every terminal session on my Mac on the surface looks the same because they all have the same foreground and background colors and all of that stuff. So it's not, immediately obvious to me if I'm logged into say the iMac downstairs or the server that runs TMO in Virginia. And, uh, and once, thankfully it's only happened once I issued a restart for the computer downstairs and Hey, guess what? The computer in Virginia started restarting. Um, the only way to mitigate against that is to like do some customizations of your shell, um, uh, so that you can like see different colors there or, uh, I, at, at this point in time, I happen to be, uh, already suited up as root on, on this machine down in, in Virginia. So what I'm about to say wouldn't help, but, um, if I wasn't, and I was just going to type say sudo space, shutdown space, dash R space, space now, which says shut it down, but really, and then restart and do it now. Um, but by typing sudo before it, it's because I have to type my root or my password to, to authenticate as root. I know this goes without saying, and I know none of us would ever do this, but make sure you have your passwords different between those servers. So if you think you're in, you know, telling the computer downstairs to reboot, you'll type at the very least, you'll type its password and it'll say wrong. And then you'll be like, oh yeah, that's right. I'm not logged into that computer, but yeah, that's what happened with, uh, with Amazon this week. And, uh, and it can happen to anybody. I've, I've totally experienced it, you know? It's interesting. Human error. You just got humans out of the equation. Error between the chair and the keyboard. That's right. <laughs> or operator error, as we call it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it happens. All right. You want to uh, you want to change gears and talk about uh, the next Michael? And it is. It's it's three different Michaels that you picked this week, John. But um, but uh, you want to talk about the next Michael and, and yes. perhaps a little router thing here? All right, and sweet. Michael has a Actually, you know what? Question. You know what? Before we do that. Because I'm going to talk through the sponsor block and then I'm going to let you, I'm going to give my voice yet another rest and I'm going to let you talk about Michael after we talk about our sponsors here. Um, our first sponsor, as I mentioned, is Text Expander with Text Expander for Teams. Text Expander is a tool that you've heard me talk about countless times. It's one of those things I desperately uh, need on every Mac that I use because it allows me to have little snippets of text that I can invoke with shortcuts. One of the best parts about that is that I know what I'm typing isn't going to be screwed up by me typing it because I'm pulling it from the snippet, right? And so I type my little shortcut and the text comes out. Now think about that in the context of a team, right? When you're running customer service, 
you want to make sure that what's being sent to your customers, like if, if there's uh, you know, if you're going to do a return or if you're going to thank them for your business or anything like that, you want to make sure there's no typos in there. You want to make sure that it's said the way you want your company to say it. And let's be fair. You might have some people. In fact, I guarantee you, you've got some people at your company that are better at writing than others. So why not have the people that are very good at writing write the at least stock things that you send to your customers for everyone. And with text expander for teams, not only can they do that, but you can share this snippet library in a way that if you want to make a change to one of those things that you're sending to your customers, well, it's now automatically propagated to everyone on your team. As long as they're using the same shortcut, everybody gets the updated current version of whatever snippets you're going to use. Everything's immediately accessible. It's all searchable. And again, you just use simple abbreviations and now it's available on Mac, iOS and windows. So it doesn't matter what computers people are using to do this. They have access to it in real time everywhere. Text expander helps your customer service provide or your team provide better, faster and more accurate customer service. Um, it's great stuff. Teams of all sizes can can leverage this, right? Obviously, the smoke, the folks at the smokes. No, it's the folks. The folks at Smile use this. The folks at One Password use this. The folks at WordPress, Shopify, You Need a Budget. They all use this. So visit TextExpander.com/geek, and uh, and you can start learning and using it too. Great stuff. Our second sponsor is Blue Apron. Where at blueapron.com, you, uh, sorry, blueapron.com slash MGG. You got to use the slash MGG. Otherwise, what I'm about to tell you won't work. If you go to blueapron.com slash MGG, you will get your first three meals for free. Blue Apron sends you all the ingredients you need and a how-to sheet to make the meal that you have chosen. So you're doing this with all fresh ingredients. It's really tasty. You get to actually cook it. This isn't just like, you know, peel off the, 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 you know, the wrapper and put it in a microwave. No, no, no. You are cooking these meals, but they, they're all very efficient. They take, they all take like 20 or 30 minutes. That's it. It's fun to do as a, a family or a group together. And, uh, and they've got meals for two people or four people. You can do a family plan, whatever you want. Uh, some of the recipes, pasta and arrabbiata sauce. That's coming up. Tasty stuff. Uh, miso butter chicken. Yeah, I know. Pork and cabbage tacos, right? Vegetables, chili and baked sweet potatoes. This is some tasty stuff that they're doing here. Really cool things. Uh, crispy cod sandwiches with salsa verde, right? Chicken meatballs and fregola sarda. Like, this is tasty stuff. Green garlic pesto pasta. I mean, come on. You know, this is stuff that you're going to enjoy eating in addition to enjoying the cooking. And that's how it works. It, they, they have, and what's, what's cool about Blue Apron is that they've got uh, partnerships with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the United States. So the seafood 
is all sourced sustainably under standards developed uh, in partnership with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. The beef, chicken, and pork all come from responsibly raised animals. The produce is sourced from farms that all practice regenerative par- farming. Um, and Blue Apron can be delivered to 99% of the continental U.S. Uh, it's really, really great stuff. So you got to check it out. Go to blueapron.com slash MGG and sign up. You'll get your first three meals for free. Meals generally are about uh, 10 bucks or less per person. Uh, so it really, it, you know, for good fresh ingredients for a good dinner. And this is not just your, your entree. It's like, you've got the full meal there. Uh, so for, and I, like I said, when we do it on the family plan, it comes out to a, you know, somewhere between like eight fifty and nine fifty a person kind of thing. That's relatively inexpensive compared to, you know, even what you're going to get going to the grocery store, uh, ship for free. You got to check this out. So go to blueapron.com slash MGG coupon code, uh, is not necessary. It's right there. It's just blueapron.com slash MGG. And you get your first three meals for free and you're going to enjoy it. You're going to have fun. It's tasty stuff. Thanks to both Blue Apron and the Smile with Text Expander for Teams for uh, sponsoring this episode. All right, John. Now take me to Michael, please. I will take us all to Michael. <clears throat> and Michael's going to take us to an interesting place or a very. It's specific, but it's general. Okay. I'm going to make it general, although he has a specific question. So a specific question is about Eero. And he says, I have a printer hooked to my current first generation time capsule. Okay. So first thing I'd be like, you may want to ditch that. Though <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't have to, uh, because no, no. I understand why he wants to keep it. So he has a first generation time capsule. And time capsule, it's a router, um, has a drive in there to do your backups. Sure. And he's also using it to, do a, to share a printer. So he has a printer plugged into the USB port on the time capsule. And what that does for you is it makes your printer available on the network. I think it advertises it using Bonjour. So if you're on another machine on the network and you say, hey, add a printer, it'll be like, oh, yep, here it is. And that's a nice feature. You may not want to give that up. Sure. And he doesn't. So he said he'd like to continue using it both for the time capsule and the printing, print sharing capabilities. But if he wants to get an arrow. What do you do? Because as I said, my recommendation is you may not want to be using that time capsule sure. uh, Wi-Fi. And it sounds like he's thinking about getting an arrow. So how do you get the two to coexist? And how do you is, get uh, the two to coexist, John? Oh, and he also, and he mentions he has a Comcast uh, Eris uh, thing. Um, okay. How do you get this to to happen? And I'm going to give the very general answer. Now, the thing is, I did something very similar, is that when I was having a, a operator error trying to set up the Eero, I was like, you know what? Uh, there's something weird here. Um, and I eventually figured out what I was doing wrong. But I was using my TP-Link Archer C9 uh, for the Wi-Fi, uh, I'm sorry, for the routing capability and using the Eero's Wi-Fi. Okay. And so how do you accomplish this in a general sense? And I'll tell you how you accomplish this in a general sense. Now, the thing is, you can, you, can, you can go either way here. So you could continue to use one or the other device as your router. But the important part of this is you do not, absolutely do not want to have two devices on your network that are both acting as routers because that leads to chaos. It's just bad. Yeah. <laughs> 
you could do it, but you're, you're going to, you're going <laughs> to. Yeah. Eventually you're, it'll work fine, it, but you will have scenarios where what's it's a double NAT scenario where you've got two things acting as a router kind of hanging off of each other and, and you'll run into scenarios or, or issues with that at times that will be unexplained if you forget that you've got it set up that way. So it's right. better not to have two things running as a router if you can avoid it. And, and the thing is, typically a lot of traffic has trouble transversing a double NAT scenario. So you just don't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. So you can go one of two ways here. So in general, what you're going to want to do is take your cable modem and plug it into uh, and plug it into the WAN port uh, of the device that you want to act as the router. Now, in the case of the Eero, it's it, it's a smarty pants, so you can plug it into either Ethernet port on the Eero. Right, and um, it'll figure it out. That's right. On the time capsule and on my TP link, there actually is a dedicated WAN port. So what you want to do is decide which thing you want to act as your router. Plug the cable modem into that, and then plug the other device whose services that you want to use... So let's pretend we want to use, like in my case, the Eero is the router. And let's say I had a time capsule uh, okay. with the printer sharing and I wanted to, to take advantage of its abilities. This is the important part. You want to put that device into what's called bridge mode. And any device, uh, every, any device that I've seen that can act as a router, you can also put it in bridge mode. And it basically says, don't act as a router. Just be transparent. Just be part of the network. That makes um, sense. And yeah. he says, so, you know, could I get an Eero and could I plug my time capsule into the Eero? Um, and the thing is, yes, you could. Uh, I, my preference would be that you, you get a switch uh, unless you only have one other, uh, uh, you know, hardwired device, in which case, yeah, I don't see why that wouldn't work. So you set up the Eero as your router, you plug your cable modem into one port and then you plug the, uh, the time capsule into the other port and then you're going to want to uh, configure the time capsule uh, turn off its Wi-Fi and put it in bridge mode. And you should be able to share your printer and do the time capsule stuff as you did before. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I want to, I mean, we're talking about Eero specifically here. And, and there it, I totally get why you might want to, it, certainly in this case, you, you're going to want the Eero as the router and as, as your, obviously your Wi-Fi mesh. And then you've got, a reason to use the time capsule because you can hang this, uh, this printer off it with, with, uh, with USB. It's totally makes sense. Um, you might want to set up your, and we have a lot of people doing this, which is like totally decadent because they're taking my two favorite existing router techs and blending them together, running the Synology 2600 AC as their router. Cause they like all the configuration options and trust me, I get it. And then using the Eero in bridge mode to run their wireless mesh, which, again, is just totally decadent. Um, Eero's dropped their price by 100 bucks, so, so that helps. But, uh, but still, awesome. But lots of you are doing it. I kind of want to do it, but I've got my Eero set up at my dad's house now uh, so that I can test the full, um, you know, running it as a router mode. Uh, so anyway, um, the Eero will work in bridge mode, right? But not every one of the mesh options out there will. And I'm doing this off the top of my head. So Eero will work in bridge mode. Ubiquity's Amplify will work in bridge mode. The Orbi will work in bridge mode. The new Linksys Velop will work in bridge mode. However, 
there's no way in the main UI to do that. You have to log into the super secret web UI to set it to bridge mode. And then it, <laughs> it totally works fine. Um, and, and there's some talk of that super secret web UI being made a whole lot less super secret um, because it's an awesome UI. It's way better than eh, the app. is actually pretty good, but it's better than that. Um, so the firmware update might fix that. Uh, but the, that will do it. Um, Google Wi-Fi specifically will not operate in bridge mode unless you are only using one Google Wi-Fi device. Um, so if, if you, which which effectively precludes it from being used as a mesh, if you are using multiple Google Wi-Fi's to create your wireless mesh, it will not let you put it into bridge mode. This, of course, doesn't make sense. Google sort of their 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 PR people acknowledge this and, and are intelligent about it. Um, I don't want to put I don't want to say that Google's acting ridiculously, but their their forward facing sort of customer messaging page says you lose uh, all of the meshing features if you put it in bridge mode. We know that's not true because I just listed a bunch of meshing things that work great as a mesh without uh, without being in router mode. And Google knows this, too. They may offer a software update that allows bridging um, down the road. But currently, Google Wi-Fi does not. So um, and I think uh, let's see, Luma will not work in bridge mode to my knowledge. Um, and I think I've covered them all. So, so there you go. Just be careful. Uh, Google Wi-Fi and I believe Luma will not work as the as just a a bridged mesh, but the rest of them will. And I've actually been running, uh, running lots of them this way uh, to test them. The Linksys Velop and the Ubiquity Amplify in bridge mode. So, and now uh, Ubiquity. I just started testing this yesterday. Ubiquity. Does a cool thing, John. Uh, if I might hijack, continue to hijack this uh, this this question from you here. But they now have their Amplify HD mesh points for sale. I believe they're for sale. They're going to be. They exist. They shipped me one to test. I'm using it. It works great. It's a standalone mesh point, so you can associate it with your existing router. So I associated it with my Synology RT2600AC. You can buy multiples. You can make a mesh out of whatever router you cur you want to use, right? So in your case, John, I mean, I know you're happy with Eero and that's great. But if you didn't have Eero and you had your TP-Link, but you wanted to do some meshing, um, you could get, a, you know, one or two of these uh, Ubiquity eight Amplify HD mesh points, standalone mesh points, and associate them with your, your network. It effectively is a very, very smart, uh, you know, wireless repeater uh, extender setup, but it's all using the same SSID. It's all doing things as intelligently as possible, given that, you know, the way it works. And it will do multi-hop if uh, if you need to do that, but it's also smart enough to know that multi hop is generally not the most efficient thing if it's possible for everything to talk back to the, the main router. So it's pretty cool what they've done with this. So uh, so we'll put a link to those. Hopefully it exists and hopefully I'm not spilling the beans too soon. But uh, I don't think I am. I, it hasn't been like all the emails I've gotten haven't had like embargo all over them. So at least not anymore. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's cool. Very, very, very cool. Um so finally, yeah. yes, John. Now to get back to printer sharing. So I want to share this with others because I, sure. I ran into 
some issues when I wanted to share my printer. So uh, like Michael, um, I shared my USB. It's a HP uh, uh, inkjet. That's a USB printer. And when I had the, the time capsule, I would plug it in and share it that way. Well, once I ditched my time capsule, I had to find another way to do that. And you may ask yourself, what are the other ways of sharing a USB printer? Well, one was the TP-Link actually has a USB port on it. And they did offer, though I don't think they've updated it, and then they offered a special driver that you had to install that would allow computers to map the printer plugged into the TP-Link from another computer. Sure. Like I said, they, um, because of... uh, I don't know. I think the driver was not signed. Um, There are issues running it on the most recent OS, and I haven't looked if they've updated that. I hope that they do, because that was a nice feature. That was one of the selling features of getting that, is that you could either plug a hard drive into it or a printer and share it, similar to the time capsule. Um, The Eero does have a USB port on it, but as far as we know, Dave, uh, its its, uh, purpose is to be there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, maintenance only. And in and other words, if you, I don't know no. what would happen if you plugged a printer in there, but I'm sure, I don't, I don't think it'll destroy it, but I don't think it's going to share it, which would be nice. And maybe they'll add that someday. Right. That, that would be swell. Another option for sharing a printer, and this is what I'm currently doing right now, is I have it plugged into my Mac Mini. So you plug it in, uses the driver on the Mac Mini, and then you go into system preferences, sharing, and I think I enable print sharing. And that will make that printer available to other machines on the network. Finally, another thing which I toyed with, but it wasn't quite for me because the driver that they used wasn't that great, you can actually use many Synology devices to share a printer. And That's this works, true. But the, and the thing is, they the thing is, I didn't go for that option because the driver that they used wasn't a good match for this printer. This is kind of a weird printer and it can print up to 13 by 19 inches. Sure. Uh, and whatever driver they used wasn't, it, it didn't quite grok that concept. So if I tried to print uh, on anything larger than eight and a half by 11, it didn't get it quite right. So I, and they may have fixed that. They just released a new version of TSM. So, uh, right. Six one is out now. Hooray. Yeah. Right. So, um, but a Synology is another way that you can share printers, uh, USB printers. Yep. So sharing is good. So those are, I think all the options that I know of for, for sharing a printer. Yeah. Uh, the, there's One that's USB only. We, we had someone in the chat room point out that a lot of printers now have USB in them. And I guess you can buy have them Wi-Fi in them. You mean? Yeah. Or, I'm sorry. Yes. Have Wi-Fi and you can then make it part of your network and then it'll broadcast itself in a similar fashion. You can then access it from any other computer um, because it has Wi-Fi and it joins the network and says, right. hi, I'm a printer. Yeah. Yeah. And isn't there, I'm trying to remember if the, um, if Lantronic still makes their X print server. Gosh. Right. But I I don't, that was all the rage a while ago. It was a device that, yes, it let you share a USB printer via Wi-Fi. Yeah. Or onto your network. It was an ethernet thing that you plugged in and then, and then it, yeah, I mean, it obviously connected to your existing Wi-Fi if your Wi-Fi was connected to your ethernet, which it always is. So, uh, yeah, I, I think the, the X print server office, which they call enterprise mobile printing, but this is the device. And, uh, 
and it looks like it is available from Lantronics still. Um, you can sell it. You can buy. You can sell it. You can't sell it. You have to talk to Lantronics about that. But um, but you can order it. It it's not cheap though. I think it's like two hundred and fifty bucks. So maybe I'm missing uh, the consumer version of this. But uh, we'll put it in the show notes and, and then we'll notify Lantronics of, of this discussion. We'll find out about the uh, we'll see if there's a, you know, a, a version that is more acceptable price wise to the consumer because because um, there yeah, used to be, a, I feel I'm like seeing a few options here. Are I you? just typed in Lantronics print server. Yeah. Google brought up. Uh, well, it brought up, which I think you found the current product, one ninety nine ninety five. dollars Okay. I think is a bit steep for many people yeah your printer um but then i also see it looks like somebody on ebay is selling one of their first generation and that's 59 bucks and then i see x print server cloud edition for 149 yeah so anyways lantronics makes print serving solutions yeah uh, and we've uh we have used them in the past yeah but, i've got uh, one here um but yeah, that seems like, like you said, 200 bucks seems a little pricey. You can probably buy a new printer that has Wi-Fi capability for a lot less yeah. than that. Yeah. So anyway, there we, uh, there we go. Fun stuff. Uh, one thing I, and I know we're jumping all over the place here, but it's, it's what we do to just to jump back to the ubiquity standalone amplify HD mesh points. They are available. They're 129 bucks each. Um, and they are these mesh points that are the same as the mesh points that came with the, I believe they're exactly the same. The model number says they're the same. I, I don't believe there's a, any uh, engineering difference, but they certainly look the same as those that come with sort of the, the amplify, um, uh, uh, you know, full mesh system with the router and everything uh, in that they have no ethernet port on them. These are the things that plug only into an outlet. They hang off of the outlet. Um, if your outlets are ground up, then the antennas point down, uh, because that's how these things are. And I think all building code now in the U S says that outlets need to be ground up. So that's a little weird and there's no ethernet port on them. So if you have ethernet in your walls and you want to use that, which is much better, of course, to to build your mesh. There are different Amplify, or sorry, there are different Ubiquity products that you can get, but the Amplify Mesh HD points wouldn't be what you want to use for that. But for simply putting, uh, you know, a couple of mesh points around your house, it's a, it's a cool, cool little solution. So anyway, uh, let's move on and change gears entirely. Let's go to Brett here because Brett's got, um, well, you know, Brett's got a problem. He says, I have seven different email accounts and each has several aliases. When I create a new mail message, mail autofills a return email address from my alias list. Sometimes when I'm in a hurry, I forget to check and send the email using the wrong alias. Is there a way to set up mail to always require me to select a return address when I create a new message? It works fine when replying to an existing message, but not a new one. So, um, I have some, some thoughts on this. If you go to mail preferences and composing, you can see there that you can either choose a specific email address to send all mail from, or you can say automatically select the best account, automatically select the best account is what most of us would use in this scenario. And it will do, um, it will choose based on a couple of factors. If you're replying to an email, it will just reply from the address 
to which the, the email was sent. So that's actually almost certainly what you want. If you are composing a brand new email, it will try to be intelligent about it based on what mailbox you're in, what message you currently have selected. Uh, it seems like sometimes there are other factors involved, but, uh, but that's what it does. So, and I can totally get where if you're not paying close attention, it, you would wind up sending a message without choosing the right from address. Um, I live in this world. I've done it, but I've been, I've been doing it long enough that I, I think my habits are such that I never send an email without first stopping to look at that um, as part of kind of my, my pre-send check. Uh, if you don't want to have to wait until your habits have developed though, and I totally get that one way to do it would be to create a separate mail account that you don't check and you don't store a password for. And the from address is something that you cannot send mail from. And that way, if you don't change it and set that in the, you know, mail preferences composing as the always send from this address. And that way, if you don't change it and you hit send, it's going to pop up and say, what's the password for this account? I can't send mail from this account. And it'll sort of get you. It won't send the message because it literally cannot because it doesn't have the right mail server or password or credentials or anything for this, you know, kind of dummy mail account. So that would be one way to sort of put the, the stops in to force you to select uh, an outbound address. I don't know of any either built in or extension slash plugin uh, way of having mail prompt you as you go to send. But I don't know about everything that's available for mail. And frankly, I don't even know about all the features in the plugins that I do use. So it's entirely possible. Somebody will say, hey, dude, mail act on. I'll do this. And I'll say, hey, no kidding. Uh, so if somebody does want to say, hey, dude, or hey, Dave, or whatever you want to call me, it's fine. Uh, send a message to us at feedback at and and, uh, and we'll we'll go from there. But uh, but those are my thoughts on that, John. What do you think? My thoughts are your thoughts in this case. Is that, that's how I'm set up. Yep. Yep. It, yeah. It almost always gets it right. I, yeah. I will say that, that it, you're right. It, and, and, you know, the other day um, I was looking at Mac Geek Gab email and I wanted to forward a message actually to you because you put together a great thing that I thought would be an awesome um uh, Mac Geek Gab answers because it involves some terminal stuff and, and things like that, that that would be better in print than than spoken here on the podcast. So I wanted to forward this to you. So I hit, you know, the shortcut keyboard shortcut for forward. I typed in your address. And at that point, the from address changed from what I just said, feedback at MacGeekGab.com to Dave at MacObserver.com because that's the message. That's the address that I usually send to you from. So I, I found that very interesting because I went to change it and was like, Oh, it's already changed. How did it, how did it know? So I don't know. I might've done something to cause it to change, but, um, it, but it, uh, you know, it, it did it. I don't remember doing it. And again, you know, I just came back from a trip. I've been tired. And so, you know, I'm not, uh, who knows? Who knows? Nice. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure that you, you, you mentioned an email address, Dave. I'm pretty sure the email address that you, you uh, just said is feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Well, I said it twice, so I, I, I hope I got it right. The only thing that I will point out is that uh, many of you, in fact, I would say most of the people that we've 
talked about in this show, and I think possibly all the remainders, but I might be wrong about that, are premium subscribers. And so premium at MacGeekGab.com is the address that all of these people have used to send us their messages. And to be perfectly honest, this week, the premium address is the only one I was able to get through everything with because my schedule was tight coming back from this trip. I was exhausted and uh, we almost didn't get to do the show today, but thankfully there was enough in the premium box to, uh, to get through the, uh, the show, the rest of you that, uh, that didn't, that aren't premium members, I will get to it. We will get to it, um, within the next week here, but the premium address does get prioritized. We always say that and we mean it because we do it. So, uh, if you're interested in supporting us, please visit, uh, slash premium or simply MacGeekab.com. There's instructions there on, on how to support us directly. We would very, very much appreciate it. It, uh, it helps more than you could possibly imagine, although perhaps you can imagine enough. So thank you for everyone that's a premium subscriber, uh, including all the folks that we've talked about here, including Brett. So hopefully we helped Brett with uh, with that. And now premium listener Robin has a question about mounting network drives full time. Robin writes, uh, oh, I got to get past all my crazy screenshots here. I have a geeky question, which is good because this show, this episode has turned out to be a pretty geeky one. I have a MacBook Pro 13 inch, which currently has a two terabyte external drive attached for my media files, iTunes, photos, etc. I'm thinking of moving this to one of my more robust storage mediums. I have two options and one advice upon which route will provide the best and most reliable service. I have a four bay Synology disk station, which is option one. And I also have a five bay Drobo 5D attached to my Mac mini running uh, OS 10 or Mac OS server package, which of these should I host my files on? And how do I make sure that they auto mount and are always available when I am at home? This is a good question. Um, either one of those options is going to suffice. Uh, the Drobo is obviously a direct attached unit. It's not network attached, but it is network attached in that you have it connected to an always on Mac mini running as a server. So from that standpoint, it's totally fine. It's always on the Synology disk station is obviously directly attached to your network. It's on all the time. So in terms of storing files, the two are, are very equal in that regard. They both will store files and the way you have them set up, they both are available full time on the network. So pick whichever one of those you want to use. And then um, the way I do this is twofold. I need to make sure that drives are mounted when I start up my machine, so when I log in, and also when my computer wakes up from sleep. So to do the first one, I created an automator action that auto mounts or that mounts uh, the the shares that I have that I on my network here at the house and office that I want to have up on my Mac all the time. Uh, I have three of them, but you know you might just have one, and that's fine. Uh, you do an automator action called get specified servers. And, uh, and then you just put in the, the, the server addresses there. You can use SMB or AFP, just, you know, go and get that from your network connections and paste it in there. You can even just add it in and then use the automator action connect to servers. And that will take the input from get specified servers, which is what we just did and connect prior to that. I actually have it get specified finder items. And I go into the volumes folder 
and choose the, uh, you know, I call, I call my thing like volume slash DS-general, DS which is my disk station general storage. I have it get that and then eject that disk. I make sure it's cleared that out before I start mounting the servers again, just in case it wants to double up. But, uh, but get specified servers and connect to servers are the two automator actions that I link together. And then I save that on my Mac as an application. You can save automator uh, scripts, for lack of a better term, uh, as applications so that they can run standalone. This is important because you're going to want to run this as a standalone app. So once I've done that, I put the standalone app in my login items and it mounts my servers when I start up my Mac. So that's a win. Right up until my Mac goes to sleep and then wakes up from sleep and it's not there. For that, I use Control Plane. Control Plane is a very, very cool little piece of software at controlplaneapp.com that allows you to script or trigger actions based on what they call contexts. Contexts are then decided by evidence sources. And one of the evidence sources that you can choose is sleep-wake status. So I set a, uh, an evidence source of wake up. And I run exactly the same action, the, this little app, uh, when my Mac wakes up. And even better, I sync that little action uh, with, with I, you could do it with Dropbox, I do it with Synology Cloud Station, but you could do it with iCloud Drive. I sync that action to all of my Macs in the house here, so that if I ever make a change to it, everybody gets the, the same thing. So now when my Mac wakes up, it does the same thing. It remounts those drives, and everybody it's happy and I don't have to think about it. The drives are always mounted for me all the time. So that's what I do. John, any thoughts? I kick it old school and I manually mount my uh, <clears throat> network shares when I need to and yep. then unmount them when I'm done with them. Yep. Um, yeah, that's what I do. And if I put the machine to sleep, uh, you'll you'll often get this message. So if I put the machine to sleep and wake it up, sometimes you'll get this message. I think it says network connection interrupted or something similar. Yep. And then it's like, yep, hold on, hold on. I'm talking to this network share. I'm, I'm... You'll be able to use it in a moment. Um, and then with USB drives, um, yeah, again, I plug them in, do what I need, and then, uh, and then unmount them. Or... Uh, on my one machine, I have a carbon copy cloner do it for me. Right. Well, so, okay. So that, that's sort of the, um, the, the corollary to this is when, uh, with carbon copy cloner, I, you know, I clone to a clone drive every day, carbon copy cloner. When it finishes doing that clone, it ejects the disc for me, which is good. You don't want your clones online because, uh, because they'll take over the world. No, 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 that's different. Uh, because you don't want to accidentally be launching apps or files or anything from your clone. And since it's a clone, it all has the same name. It's hard to know the difference. Um, when you start up your Mac though, your clone will mount. So you either have to remember every time your Mac starts up to eject your clone or write an automator action that's mm -hmm. that ejects your clone and save it uh, on, you know, again, as an app, and put it into your login items so that when your Mac starts up, it also runs that it ejects your clone. You're good to go. So that's the, uh, that's the other flip. 
flip side of it. And it's for this reason that I hope Automator stays around. But, you know, we shall see, right? Fun stuff. Um, okay, Phil. We're going to let Phil ask his question. And Phil's going Phil's gonna to tell us who Phil is. Hello, boys. It's Phil here from Scared. Yes, the Scared Podcast, available now on iTunes, Google Play, and at scaredpodcast.com. Are you afraid of the dark? You will be. This is the Scared Podcast. Anyway, as we get ready to launch a second show, a sister show called Extra Scared, a look at the week's paranormal news, I'm a bit lost because I need something, I need an app where I can dump in links and text and photos and maybe videos. Now, at the moment, I'm using Pocket to save the article, but I'd love an app where I can just, as I said, dump text and videos and photos and all that sort of stuff that I can use later. Now, I'm sure on MacGeekGab you've talked about such an app where you can store stuff like an online filing cabinet. So that's my question. What was that app? Or do you know of some sort of app? So this is Phil from scarepodcast.com. Nice plug. Thanks for what you do. This is where you can cut me off. Scaredpodcast.com. I think that's a good place to cut Phil off. Uh, yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> that's what you think. You, you might argue that it was earlier in the process, John. <laughs> it was entertaining. Yeah, it's this entertaining. This one time. That's this one time. That's right. Just don't, don't do it again. Yep. Uh, <laughs> so what, what we use here is Evernote. Uh, and Evernote allows us to do exactly that, all of that. And in fact, I played Phil's without even thinking about it. I played Phil's audio comment from Evernote. I took it when it came in. I put it into Evernote. I named it, uh, you know, Phil asking a question about an online filing cabinet. And the nice part was I did. I don't even remember what computer I did that on, but it synced here via my Evernote account to this computer, it also synced because we share this library to your Evernote uh, account and you have it in your Evernote as well. Evernote runs on all platforms, Mac, Android, iOS, Windows, doesn't matter. You can even see it on the web and uh, and you can store links, you can store files, you can store text and uh, and it works great. So so there you go. But you could also use Apple Notes. Uh, to do a mm. lot, if not all of this, it, well, you could do a lot of it. What Apple notes won't do is allow us to share an entire notebook in a collaborative way. Uh, yet it will allow us to share notes, individual notes in a collaborative way. That's not enough for what you and I need to do, John, but, but for Phil, Apple notes might be enough. Oh, that's, um, or, you know, Microsoft's OneNote, I hear great things about. I've also heard about a new thing called, I, don't, I think it's about a year old, called Bear. Um, and and I don't know enough about it, but uh, it's at Bear. Bear, bear-writer.com, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, we love bears. That. Well, oh, actually, no. Not in person. No. no. The tunnel bears. I like tunnel bear. That's totally different. I know. Okay. So... Uh, but yeah, Evernote, Evernote will do it for you. Um, 
Only thing I'll mention with Evernote, and I'm within their... Uh, so, so they had a... Eh, they got cheapskates like me kind of upset the other, a little while ago. The thing is, you, uh, uh, you can only run two copies under your account before they want you to throw them some coin. Yeah, but right it's, now, it's relatively it cheap, my, right? I yeah. mean, I, I think I'm But paying... I work with it. The thing is, I, I run it on my Mini, and I run it on my MacBook Pro, and I really don't feel a need to run it on my, IO, on my phone. So okay. I don't. Yeah, right. So I'm within their free program limits. Yep. Um, but as an individual, um, yeah, just keep that in mind. If, if uh, right. you know, you're collaborating with a lot of people, then uh, you know, there, a small fee may be involved for Evernote. Yeah, I pay, I pay for the Evernote uh, premium thing, which is 70 bucks a year. Uh, I really only need, I think I would only need Evernote Plus, which is 35 a year. But, uh, but I choose to pay for the premium because it lets me search for text inside of PDFs, uh, which is a handy thing for me to uh to be able to do i can also uh, edit pdfs inside it which i never really do anymore but um but that it allows to you know annotation and all that stuff too but uh, we do a lot with pdfs here what john and i do when we answer an email is we actually before we send it to you we save it as a pdf in fact we use an automator action to save that pdf title it and then stuff it into our specific Evernote kind of queue, Mac Geekab queue, in which we sync back and forth. And then from there, we we move these things around. So so they are PDFs. And, and so that's why I wind up paying for the premium one, just so I have the flexibility to do stuff there. But uh, but yeah. And and I, I'll say that Microsoft's OneNote, if we weren't already using Evernote, John, I, I think I probably would have chosen Microsoft's OneNote for our... Um, for our stuff here because it's uh it's a really great thing the app is fantastic um works great on the mac on ios all good stuff i should point out though that there is another note engine that we haven't mentioned and it's synology oh synology's note station um note station is is a lot like evernote i mean so much so that it's probably a little bit embarrassing but uh it works really, really well. There is an iOS app that's fantastic. There is no Mac app. And that's the only reason I haven't mm. moved to it. Yeah. You, I mean, you can, you do it all in your web browser, which is fine, but not really the workflow that I want. I want like a dedicated Mac app for it. And, uh, and it's for that reason that I haven't used it. And I've told the Synology folks this, um, but you know, they, they got to do what they got to do, but, uh, but their iOS app is killer. So, so anyway, throw that out there too. What do you think, John? One last one that we became aware of in a recent show. Um, I haven't really used it at all, uh, but it may be worth trying is a uh, keep. Wow. Uh, what's Google. the Oh, Google keep. Oh, right, right, right. Okay. Which I'm looking at right now. If you go to keep, google.com uh brings up something that says google keep and it says take a note and it looks like uh there's a icon that lets you insert a graphic or something so it looks like it's free huh. so um may want well, to try it's, that prob- as well. it's probably free up to your storage limits of your google account and then you'd have to buy you know more storage on your google drive to to do all that yeah uh, let's look uh, okay it's not showing me that i mean yeah the the only the only i mean the only downside i would find is that 
there is there are smartphone apps. There's Android and iPhone apps. And then if you want to run it on your desktop, um, it's there's a Chrome app for it. So you're mm-hmm. still in that sort of, you know, web browser bubble um, on that. But hey, you know, whatevs. So there you go. Very cool. Good question, Phil. Um, a little heavy on the uh, the self promotion. I forget what what podcast is it. With? Is he with there? Anyway, no. <laughs> we, I like Phil. <laughs> and, and the scared podcast is great. He's got a killer voice, so you know he's got that going uh, for him that that totally beats what what any of us Americans can do in terms of the accent. He's a he's a radio pro. Love what Phil does. All right. Uh, Let's go to yeah. Let's go to David here. Uh, actually, you know what? Let's um, let's let's go through some of these tips that we had from last week's show because uh, because it's important to get some of these. We did talk about UPSs last week, and I, I'm actually going to wait to share all of your UPS related questions and tips until uh, another week goes by because I know that there will be things that that will come in between when I prepped this show and and. And all of that because it takes you folks a little while sometimes to listen and and, and digest and then come back to us. So uh, so we're we're saving the the UPS questions and comments and and there's a ton of great tips you you folks like it's awesome. So uh, we, we will come back to that. It'll just happen next week. Uh, but for now, a couple of comments from last week's show. Listener Andrew wrote in uh, and said uh, on the most recent episode you were talking about a 27 inch iMac. Uh, a user with a 27 inch iMac, a listener and how he couldn't boot up properly. Uh, you offered a lot of suggestions, but did he try target disc mode? If he can do that and then connect it to another computer, he would be able to see if it was indeed the hard drive. That was the problem without opening up the iMac. Then he could recover the data and try to wipe the disc and reinstall. I, I t- thank you so much for this, Andrew, because that's a great suggestion. Uh, target disk mode essentially turns your computer into uh, a a very expensive hard drive case, <laughs> yeah. right? But it, it can be really, really uh, helpful to um, you know to 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 die to troubleshooting exactly this kind of problem. Uh, the way that you do it is you start up your computer while holding down the T key, and then that will. Um, that will put your computer into target disk mode and you can connect uh, firewire thunderbolt two USB C or um, thunderbolt three, which of course is over the same USB C port. So, so there you go. That's a, that's a great little suggestion. Thanks, Andrew. Good stuff. Thoughts on that, John, before we, uh, yeah, I've had to use that. And I think last I used it, it will show an icon representing the type of connection. So if it's, uh, I'm not sure if it still does that. Sure. Right. That's nice too. The last time I did it when I had a firewire connection, it would show the firewire icon. Yes, uh, that's right. It'll show the icon of the protocol that you're, that you're going to be able to use. Um, so that, yeah, that can be helpful. That's right. All right. Uh, let's see. And then we have a, uh, a thought from Peter about last week's show. And Peter actually did this. Uh, I also can go to Evernote. <laughs> And play Peter's Thought. Hi guys, listening to MGG646. Uh, one quick comment on uh, Dave's ambidextrous trackpad usage. 
Dude. <laughs> anyway, um, in reference to the discussion of video capture devices, I'm a uh, part-time tech director at a local church, and we use. There's one particular company that we actually use a lot of equipment from, including video capture devices, and that is Blackmagic Design, specifically their Intensity Shuttle. Um, it's a pretty good entry-level device, available in two connection schemes, as far as I know: Thunderbolt and USB three. Um, both offer digital and analog inputs. Uh, digital input is HDMI. Analog is composite, uh, both NTSC and PAL. S-Video and component. Uh, I, I know that uh, there is pass-through for HDMI. I'm not sure on the analog. That would have to, you'd have to check that out yourself, but uh, the USB 3.0 version is $200. The Thunderbolt is $240. Uh, hope this helps out, and uh, thanks, guys. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Peter. Great, great suggestion, man. Uh, good stuff. I like it when when all that just comes together. <laughs> I like it when a plan comes together. And yeah, I know, I'm, I'm crazy with my ambidextrosity. I, I think that, well, first of all, I'm a drummer, so I've been working uh, both hands my entire life, or at least, you know, since I was like 14 or whatever. Uh, so, yeah, I probably have a lot more dexterity in, in my quote-unquote weak hand than, than most. But I also am left-eye dominant, and and many times through my life, people have told me that I probably was supposed to be left-handed, but um, but just <laughs> wasn't. So, I don't know, whatever. It's fine. I just, you know, when I was like uh, starting trying to leverage my computer skills for money. I did a lot of page layout stuff and I found that I could type much better one handed with my right hand than I could with my left hand. And I found myself like using say something like page maker or, or um, uh, what else? What, what did we use? Uh, there were all kinds of things anyway, but, uh, but I would like be bouncing my, my hand back and forth between the mouse and the keyboard, mouse and the keyboard, mouse and the keyboard. And my left hand was sitting there doing nothing. I'm like, well, that's stupid. So I went home uh, on a Friday afternoon and I got in front of my Mac SE 30, right? So this should tell you back when this was. And I played shuffle puck cafe that entire weekend with nothing but my left hand. And, uh, and at first it was like awful shuffle puck cafe was like, um, uh, air hockey. Right. And, and it was really cool on the SE 30. Cause this, here was this device with a, you know, the Mac has a mouse. And so it was the perfect thing to, you know, just have this, this total analog, uh, control. And so by playing shuffle puck cafe all weekend with my left hand, I, I got my dexterity up to the point where I could like go to work and not be totally like flustered. And, uh, and I moved my mouse over to the left and I left my right hand on the keyboard and my left hand on the mouse. And that was a machine. It was awesome. So, uh, so that's where that all started. I don't know. It's crazy. Fun stuff. Right. What was the other page layout app? It began with an F. Cork. Cork Express. Yeah, no, I did. Frame Maker. Oh no. Frame Maker was for books and stuff. Was it, it was, must've been freehand. Yeah. Yeah. It was freehand that I used. Yeah. 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 So, because I, I never used Cork Express or Illustrator, it was always PageMaker and Freehand were the two that I used together back then. So, anyway, anyway, um, oh, a, a Mac Vader has a question here, so we might as well address that from the chat room. When we were talking about notes, he asked, uh, he says, "I was thinking about Yojimbo some time ago. Do you know if it's still in active development?" I believe it is. I used Yojimbo for a long time 
Um, but because it doesn't really do any sort of syncing, uh, it got very difficult to, to keep using it. And I, I moved everything from Yojimbo to Evernote when, uh, when I did that. And that way I could just have my notes, not only on all my Macs, it, Yojimbo would sync amongst your Macs, but it would not sync. Uh, it didn't have a two way sync to your iOS devices. And that's where, that's where the, the, you know, the deal killer was for me, but for a long time, like really long time, I used Yojimbo for, um, for our Mac geek Gab stuff. And then John and I shared it all via Dropbox. Evernote gives us a one-stop shop for that. And it's much better. So there you go. Yeah. Good stuff, but you know, whatever works for you. Um, one last thing, because why not? And we're here. This is a, uh, this is a cool stuff found redux. I'll call it. It's a good one to remember and a nice way to uh, end today's show. Premium listener Jim writes, I'm pretty sure that you have mentioned default folder X or default folder 10 as a must have app many times over the years. I've been listening to you guys from the beginning, but somehow I never gave it a try. As was once said in a movie, my wife watches often and I have consumed massive quantities of popcorn uh, in front of, well, sharing quality time with her. Big mistake. Big Huge. I started using it on a trial basis a month ago, and I would say that along with text expander default folder is the most time saving utility in my workflow. I'm not sure I could ever go back to living without it. Finding and storing files and locating recent files are now a snap. No more need to go searching for that file. I worked on or to sort through my long several level deep file system to find the document I worked on yesterday or my go-to folders. I'm a slow learner. And on the off chance that you have another listener or two who hasn't tried default folder X, I strongly recommend they take a look once in a while. You can teach an old dog, a new trick or two. Thanks, Jim. That's uh, you bet, man. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I'm like you. I, I couldn't using a Mac without default folder feels like using a Mac with mittens. It's just not OK. It's something that desperately needs to be on any computer I use. I think you feel the same way about that, right, John? It's one of the first things I install on a new machine. I, yeah. th- I think the feature that I use the most is, it, is that it keeps a history of the folders that you visited. Yeah. And that's very handy. Yeah, because totally. I don't want to navigate the whole folder structure every time I open up a dialogue. I no. just want to. Yeah, or it brings you. Often it'll bring you to where you last were. It, it's smart. Right. It's smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is smart. That's very smart. So cool stuff, folks. Well, we already told you how to email us, but you can call us at two two four eight 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 geek and leave a voicemail. John Geek is four three three five. And you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash, well, group slash MacGeekEb is the way to get there. But you could also just go to MacGeekEb.com slash Facebook. We'll redirect you there because that makes it a little easier. You can leave us iTunes reviews, and we love your iTunes reviews. In fact, uh, I think I've got one here that we have not read to you yet. So some Mac dude from USA writes it's a great podcast it's like always being first in line at the genius bar and i'm amazed at the amount of knowledge i am gaining we love your comments folks so if you visit macgeekab.com slash itunes that will bring you as close as we can get you to leaving us a review please do that for us would you please would you do that we'd love it thank you also want to thank cashfly c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com 
for providing all the bandwidth to get this show from us to you. And I'd like to thank our sponsors, as I mentioned in the show, Text Expander for teams at textexpander.com slash geek. Of course, Blue Apron, where you get your first three meals for free at blueapron.com slash MGG. And the other sponsors in our podcast marketplace this month include fatcatsoftware.com slash MGG, Otherworld Computing at maxsales.com, Barebones Software at barebones.com, and GoDaddy. GoDaddy.com where coupon code MGG30 saves you and me 30%. And thanks to you for listening. And John, thanks to you for uh, for doing the show with me all these years. 12 years almost. It's pretty awesome, man. It's fun. Do you have any thoughts to share with them? My only thought is that we've been able to do this show 12 years for one very important reason and that is because Neither of us have gotten caught. <laughs>